Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we chat with Jan Michalewski, CTO and co-founder of Anjuna Security. We talk about TEEs, or trusted execution environments, and dig a little bit deeper into the topic. So before we start, we want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, O1 Labs. O1 Labs is the company behind Coda Protocol, the world's first succinct blockchain, using recursive zero-knowledge proofs to make cryptocurrency decentralized at scale. Coda swaps the traditional blockchain for a tiny cryptographic proof, enabling a far more accessible cryptocurrency. This makes it dramatically easier to develop user-friendly, privacy-preserving crypto apps that run natively in the browser, and enable more inclusive, sustainable consensus. Their testnet is live in beta and has consistently been one of the most active testnets in crypto today. You can join their community of engineers, cryptographers, and researchers by visiting codaprotocol.com. Sign up for their newsletter to receive updates on testnet progress, mainnet launch, and their forthcoming developer SDK. So thank you again, O1 Labs. And now here's our interview with Jan from Anjuna. So today we're sitting with Jan from Anjuna Security. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thanks, Anna and uh, Frederick. Excited to be on the podcast. So today we're going to continue on a topic that we touched on some time ago. That is of TEEs, Trusted Execution Environments. The last episode we did was with Chaiche and Lukas from Gollum, and we had talked about the Graphene project. We talked a little bit about TEEs and some of their threat models, and we're hoping that in this episode we can actually dig a little deeper into TEEs and what Anjuna's doing and basically get a little deeper into this topic. This is the first time we meet, so I'm very curious to hear about who you are. Yeah, so a little bit about myself. I started my uh, career in uh, software engineering as a developer and a software architect, managed uh, development teams back in Israel. And uh, about seven years ago, I moved to the Bay Area to pursue my PhD at Stanford. And uh, I basically got uh, drawn back uh, to security, which is something I was working on uh, previously in the industry. And I actually imagined I would do signal processing and uh, more Wi-Fi related stuff. But then I started working with Dan Bonnet and uh, we started working on uh, side channel attacks uh, on mobile devices, which actually combined disciplines like machine learning, signal processing and uh, security. So I basically got to use uh, my knowledge in uh, signal processing from my electrical engineering degree and applying it to security. And uh, we had a couple of uh, works that were pretty successful. So I continued uh, working with him, then drifted into things like uh, cryptography, specifically attribute-based encryption. And uh, towards the end of my PhD, uh, when SGX uh, came out and uh, started gaining traction uh, both with academia and industry, there were a lot of publications in the space of uh, trusted execution environments. I got interested in that, basically because of the tremendous promise of it for uh, practical security in the industry. And I started thinking of what can we improve in terms of the software stack around uh, Intel SGX started some uh, academic work that uh, we'll probably talk about later in the podcast, something called uh, Cosmics, uh, which was a 
pretty long collaboration that resulted in a recent publication. But also once I finished my uh, PhD and uh, defended my thesis, I basically started uh, looking into how to commercialize something and how to productize something around uh, those uh, new technologies. And I guess this is where Anjuna comes in. Yes, and uh, that was the technical basis to Anjuna. So uh, I found my uh, founder and partner at the time that actually knew previously from Israel. And we partnered uh, to start Anjuna and uh, basically with the mission of uh, delivering uh, privacy and security for uh, cloud-based and uh, server-side applications. Cool. I have just a couple questions about your background here. So you said you were in Israel before. Were you studying there? Were you working there? So that's where I grew up uh, since uh, I was uh, about eight years old. Yeah, so uh, growing up, went to the Technion there. So if you're familiar with Starks, that's where uh, Elevant Son is uh, teaching. We know that. Uh, yeah, so, okay, you're familiar with the institution. Yeah, so that's my alma mater. That's where I did my electrical engineering degree. Uh, worked at a couple of startups there. And uh, then seven years ago, I moved uh, to the Bay Area. Why are there so many good uh, crypto people coming out of Israel? Um, uh, it's a good question. I, I think uh, one answer to that is uh, probably kind of the, some of the military background people have and kind of the interest in uh, SIGINT. And uh, basically, if you look at uh, kind of where uh, you have uh, strong uh, crypto disciplines, you can kind of look at those countries and see that there are some uh, background of intelligence there. Basically, it would be probably things like Britain, uh, Germany, US, um, US Israel. Actually, I heard that uh, Belgium has uh, the highest number of cryptographers per capita, so I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> well, I think that's maybe because of Leuven, right? Uh, okay, yeah. University? yeah. That's such an interesting idea, is, is the way that the cryptography, encryption, and sort of blockchain cryptography, where that's being developed the most, these hubs that seem to be emerging. I mean, for zero knowledge, I've said this a couple times, but I seem to be seeing like San Francisco, I'm going to put like Berlin, Leuven and London in one category. And then Tel Aviv is definitely another spot for that. Mm-hmm. Do you know of any other hubs? Would you list um, something else there? Any additional hubs for cryptography? Did you mention the Bay Area? Yeah, yeah. SF. But I, guess, I guess in those disciplines, specifically with cryptography, doesn't kind of doing good work on uh, cryptography uh, doesn't necessarily require a lot of resources or a lot of people. So once you have uh, one kind of leading figure, you can have uh, groups of students uh, forming around uh, uh, around this lab and uh, totally. doing uh, doing interesting work. So for instance, in uh, Israel, uh, it would be someone like uh, Adi Shamir or Aaron Tromer, Eli Ben-Sasson, the Technion. There are people who are doing uh, way more uh, theoretic crypto. Here that seems to be, I mean, you have the Berkeley crew yeah. and then you have the Dan Bonet lab. That yeah, you have a, be... the Dan Bonet lab at Stanford um, and in Berkeley you have Alessandro Chiesa mm-hmm. um, and then you have the East Coast uh, cryptographers, yeah, well, uh, Shafi who... Goldwasser and some of them are more on the theoretic side and uh, you have uh, Ron Rivest uh, that did uh, a lot around uh, practical uh, cryptography. Where are they based? What cities? Uh, that's uh, Cambridge, that's MIT. Okay. You have Boston University where you have uh, uh, Ron Conetti. So maybe that's my next stop on my kind of, like, yeah, lately I've be. been on a on a journey to hit up the zero-knowledge hubs, so maybe that's the next spot i got to go. Yeah, they're definitely becoming a hub. They recently had the Crypto Economic Summit. Cool. All right, so let's jump into our topic, which is TEEs. We did define this on the previous episode we did on TEEs, but I think it's really important to introduce it again. So maybe in your words, what's a TEE? So TE stands for a Trusted Execution Environment. 
It needs a bit of a vague definition. It can be all kinds of things. I guess uh, you already talked about some of those definitions in the previous episode uh, about these and uh, SGX. But it's basically an execution environment, which means some environment where you can execute code, execute some logic, some computations, and uh, you trust it. And then the question is, uh, what is this uh, trust based on? For instance, in the case of the technologies that we're going to talk about, like Intel uh, Software Guard extensions and uh, AMD's uh, Secure Encrypted Virtualization, uh, you basically have some hardware root of trust. And uh, to some extent, you trust some of the manufacturing process and uh, eventually the companies uh, behind those chips. You can also imagine uh, some other trusted execution environments. For instance, uh, there are more use case specific uh, execution environments like hardware security models or HSMs, uh, which are basically trusted execution environments for specifically cryptographic operations. So those are uh, actual hardware appliances that you trust to do something uh, correctly and uh, uh, deliver a result you can trust. And that's where like Intel SGX would be a hardware. Version. Yes. So, but yeah. there are also. This is actually I just learned this from going through some of your material. But there is actually a software TE. Is there a standalone software TE style? Is that is that a thing? I guess what you were uh, referring to is uh, uh, virtualized uh, trusted execution environments. So, for instance, in many cases, uh, we trust the hypervisor, uh, something that runs uh, multiple virtual machines to basically manage and uh, properly isolate uh, access uh, to memory, uh, whether it, it's uh, between different uh, virtual machines or within a virtual machine that's running the whole operating system to isolate a certain uh, uh, memory region and create an enclave similar to what uh, hardware-based trusted execution environments provide. So we have those technologies as well. For instance, uh, Hyper-V implements something uh, called the uh, virtual uh, secure mode and uh, virtualization-based security. There was a publication from several years ago that was called Overshadow, and uh, that was basically uh, an introduction of this concept uh, of uh, the hypervisor creating a memory region that uh, even the root users uh, inside the virtual machines uh, wouldn't be able to access. So in this case, you trust uh, the hypervisor. Frederick, this is kind of a question to you, but in like... I know in ETH2 research right now, there's a lot of talk about execution environments, maybe not TEEs, but EEs. Is this sort of a similar concept? No, not really. So the ETH2 execution environments are basically derived from the Polkadot execution environments, which is just, you know, a broad term of like, for for ETH2 and Polkadot specifically, they're an environment that you execute WASM code in. Ah. It's basically a container. Like similar to how Docker is an execution environment, ah. like it's a way to containerize certain code, and it's not, it, uh, it doesn't have the same security guarantees or implications of like T's, or even you know maybe to some extent virtualization. But so I yeah. guess what you're saying is the T in T's matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so I, I guess one parallel is. Uh, in the, in the context of blockchain, we often also try to achieve trusted execution, basically executing some logic and uh, getting a result that we trust, but we gain this trust from uh, having a, a wide consensus over the computation and over the result. Uh, whereas with the, those hardware-based trusted execution environments, there is only a single element that uh, provides this uh, trust that is supposedly very hard to break, and that's how you get to trust the computation result. So that, that might yeah. be the parallel between the kind of blockchain and the hardware-based uh, trusted execution environment. 
And that's sort of how, when we're looking at TEs and their applications in blockchain, it's usually as a means to not have to re-execute something. So in a blockchain, because you want consensus on something, each node has to re-execute the computation. And if you have a thousand nodes participating in consensus, then all of them need to re-execute it. And usually, because of the way blockchain history is, usually people re-execute the, the computation like when you're syncing as well. And like, so basically all nodes redo it every time. And the, the charm of a TEE and like what it could bring if you wanted to trust one was that, or is that you not only have to execute it once and then you can put the result on the blockchain and say it was executed by this TEE. No one else has to do this again. Just trust this result. And uh, I think the two can be basically complementary. So, for instance, uh, let's look at the example of Byzantine uh, fault-tolerant protocols. There we basically have a consensus over some uh, computation, and uh, you hope that uh, an attacker doesn't uh, take over uh, more than a third of the, of the network, uh, because that would compromise uh, the protocol, and you can no longer trust uh, the result. Um, so you can combine the two. You can both have uh, some group of... Uh, users or computers that uh, achieve a consensus, but you can also try to secure each individual node or each individual user uh, with something like a trusted execution environment to provide uh, some guarantees around the hardness of uh, getting uh, more than uh, this third malicious uh, majority for, uh, for a powerful attacker. So that's actually something that we were looking into a bit. And uh, what we did there is uh, taking Tendermint. Uh, are you familiar with the... We know it. <laughs> so, so yeah, so we took uh, Tendermint, uh, which is uh, part of uh, the Cosmos uh, framework. And we basically run Tendermint uh, nodes inside the trusted execution environment, uh, basically hardening each node and uh, preventing an attacker from uh, taking over uh, those nodes. And that can be especially interesting uh, when you're just bootstrapping this kind of uh, network, because at the beginning, you might not have too many nodes, and it actually might not be so hard to create uh, this uh, one-third malicious majority. So this combination of uh, trusted execution environments and uh, consensus uh, can be something powerful that enables uh, you to bootstrap such a network until you get too many users that would actually guarantee the correctness of the results uh, through the consensus. Wow. That's, but, I mean, the Cosmos on launch, they didn't actually do that. No, they didn't do that. And uh, that's kind of orthogonal. Uh, basically, we don't require any changes in Tendermint or Cosmos. We just take those nodes as is and uh, just put them in trusted execution environments. So where would that be useful, like, going forward? Is that is that, like, if any of the zones launch and are using a similar setup? Is, it, is that kind of why you did those testing? So um, we actually thought of it as a kind of... Uh, an interesting thing to do or a demo, uh, just some exploratory use case. But then we were actually approached by some users, companies that are looking to, to deploy Tendermint and uh, are interested in securing those nodes because they worry about the compromise of the validator uh, nodes that are uh, responsible to basically validate the transactions. And if an attacker is, is capable of compromising enough of them, that might break the protocol. I remember hearing about that actually on like launch of Cosmos and the fear that they had for mm -hmm. exactly that happening. Is this proven? Is this still very much an experiment? It sounds like something that could actually solve for that. Uh, it works. I mean, we we run those Tendermint nodes uh, inside SGX and uh, still early experimentation. It's not uh, it's not something that's uh, deployed yet, but 
um, nothing basically prevents uh, from deploying it in practice. Cool. Something we, we started touching on a little bit in the last episode, but I don't think we really covered well is how powerful is a typical TE? When you say like you're running an, uh, a Tendermint node in there, are you running a full blockchain node that like does everything that a blockchain node typically does? Or is it just the like block signing part or like what can you actually fit in uh, TE? It depends. It depends on the TE and it also depends on the software stack you're using, what kind of solutions you're using for that and how much work you're willing put, to put in. So uh, there are also uh, different approaches to that. Uh, so for instance, Intel uh, Software Guard extensions or SGX initially was intended to run small enclaves, uh, small trusted uh, code uh, that would uh, perform uh, specific operations. And uh, on the other hand, uh, AMD with secure encrypted virtualization took uh, basically the extreme opposite approach of uh, running a whole virtual machine and hardening it with the memory encryption and uh, providing a similar route of trust, but basically running a very large uh, surface inside the TE. So those are two very different approaches, uh, but you can also, to some extent, uh, abuse them. And that's exactly, for instance, what we're doing uh, at Anjuna. So with Software Guard extensions, uh, we build a software stack that enables you to take uh, an entire application without even recompiling it without modifying anything in the application and run the application entirely inside the SGX. And with the AMD Secure Encrypted Virtualization, we're uh, doing sort of the opposite. Instead of running a whole mm. virtual machine that runs a full-blown operating system, uh, we run a micro virtual machine that runs a single application. So this way, we basically, with both technologies, we kind of get to the same uh, scenario where we shrink the attack surface so that instead of being the host itself, it becomes a, a perimeter around the application. And is there a performance penalty for, for doing this sort of trickery? Yeah, so that's a great question. And the answer is different for different technologies. It's also a very nuanced answer. Uh, it really depends on the type of workload uh, you run inside the trusted execution environment. Um, so there are different bottlenecks. For instance, uh, with Intel uh, Software Guard extensions, there are a couple of uh, performance bottlenecks. Uh, one of them is related to transitioning between trusted execution inside the enclave and untrusted execution outside the enclave. So those transitions introduce uh, quite a bit of a performance penalty, and the goal is to avoid them as much as possible. Um, another bottleneck is related to memory consumption. So Intel Software Guard extensions provide a fairly small amount of physical memory dedicated to the enclave. It's uh, in total, the current version of SGX, it's a 128 megabyte, of which 96 are practically available to the enclave. So you can still run workflows that are way bigger than that. But when you do that, you basically start encountering uh, paging in and out of the what's called the EPC, the enclave page cache, to the, the rest of the DRAM. And that's, that's an operation that can be very costly. Uh, with the MD technology, they actually take a different approach to that. They don't limit the amount of uh, memory that uh, can be secured uh, using the MD memory encryption. And in terms of uh, the performance of uh, accessing this memory, uh, they avoid uh, this integrity check uh, that Intel introduced in the Software Guard extensions, which on one hand provides a somewhat weaker security model 
So there are certain uh, types of attacks that are hard to carry out, but uh, certain attacks are possible where you can uh, swap some uh, content uh, uh, with something else um, and continue running your uh, trusted execution environment, uh, which is something uh, SGX prevents. So avoiding this integrity check enables them to operate uh, way faster. So okay. there, with uh, certain workloads, we see faster performance compared to SGX. I sort of want to go a little deeper into these trade-offs that you're describing. So security is a trade-off, mm-hmm. time to execute is a trade-off, and size, or like the amount of capacity. I, I wasn't quite clear on that, the so, AMD side. Uh, size is, uh, can, can affect it indirectly. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, a large enclave running uh, under Intel SGX wouldn't be performant. It really depends on kind of the pattern of the of accessing the memory and how you process the data. Uh, how much uh, memory do you need to access at once? If an enclave is big, but uh, the typical working set, sort of the amount of uh, uh, memory you normally access is uh, fairly small and fits within this enclave page cache, then you might not see any penalties. Uh, but on the other hand, if you constantly access a, a large working set uh, that exceeds this uh, APC, you'll encounter those uh, penalties. Are there any other characteristics where you see them fitting into this trade-off model? I guess in terms of security, to clarify the differences, one important one is this memory integrity. To really prove that you get a trusted execution result, you need this memory integrity. It's hard to prove something formally uh, when you're using a secure encrypted virtualization if you assume the attacker is actually able to modify the content of the memory pages. If you assume that the attacker is uh, only passive and doesn't do that, you can prove uh, certain things. But uh, to achieve this uh, kind of full security, up to side channel attacks, by the way, <laughs> which is SGX uh, is still uh, concerned with them. But if you rule that out, uh, you can uh, actually provide some uh, very strong uh, security guarantees around SGX uh, that you cannot uh, fully provide with the secure encrypted virtualization. In terms of uh, practical concerns, Something like secure encrypted virtualization tremendously raises uh, the bar for attackers. So we'd love to see either one of them uh, deployed uh, at scale in the industry. When you started to talk about the different security models, and you mentioned the one, but is there others? I guess um, going back to uh, your bringing up a software-based trusted execution environment, uh, that can be a different uh, uh, security model where you trust the hypervisor, but uh, you don't trust applications running inside the virtual machine. So that as well can be a significant improvement uh, in terms of uh, security in the industry. So we're all running uh, virtual machines on the cloud, and whereas uh, something like uh, SGX can actually prevent the cloud operator from accessing your application and your data, often that's not the main concern. What you're more concerned with is attackers breaking and hacking into your VM, uh, obtaining uh, root administrative privileges on the virtual machine, and then breaking into your application. And that's something that uh, software-based, uh, hypervisor-based uh, uh, protections can prevent. When you talk about these characteristics of a TE and like take memory as an example, you have 100 megs memory, then you need to be concerned with you know, how often will I page out, what's my total workload. It starts sounding very similar to doing embedded programming. How similar to that is it? Uh, you mean in terms of kind of the being very conscious about your uh, code, your performance? 
Exactly, um, yeah. and uh, and I guess the tooling as well, like uh, how you how you actually measure this, how you test it, and everything else. I think you nailed it. You're correct. Uh, you're totally totally right about it. I'm actually coming from a background of uh, real time embedded systems uh, in the past. Our engineering team has uh, very good uh, knowledge around uh, low level programming, assembly, uh, performance optimization. So definitely, we need to be very conscious about performance, about uh, minimizing the footprint of our software. So for instance, uh, our stack is uh, very small and doesn't take uh, too much of, uh, of the EPC so that you can use most of it for the application uh, itself. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely reminds embedded uh, programming in the sense that you craft a very performant code, and uh, you also care a lot about the security. You basically cannot afford uh, bugs, overflows in your uh, software stack because that's running in the enclave, and that has to not enable an attacker to execute uh, code inside the enclave. Talking about tooling, I, I assume this is uh, in part like what you would classify as, as what you're working on in your company. Like what tools are there to make it easier to write applications for TEs? Or as you mentioned, you, you have an environment where you can now deploy any application, but obviously you're not going to take like your Telegram binary and just run it in there because it's not going to work out that well, probably. Like how, how do you suggest that people work with TEs and what tools do you provide? Like, I assume there's like compiler stuff going on to help out and et cetera. <laughs> yeah, so I think the answer is uh, twofold. Uh, by the way, why wouldn't you run a whole Telegram server inside this uh, trusted execution environment? What I mean by that is actually that's, that's kind of the vision. Yeah, uh, we envision running uh, very complex, uh, big applications inside uh, of uh, inside SGX and uh, SCV. And uh, just to give some examples, uh, uh, we do this kind of stuff. So uh, we don't only run small enclaves, but uh, we run entire databases, secrets management solutions, uh, pretty complex applications inside the enclave. And that sometimes surprises uh, people because it's a fairly new concept. So JJ uh, in the, the previous uh, podcast on uh, SGX was also mentioning it. Uh, that's basically uh, the vision of those uh, library OSs to enable you to lift and shift applications without doing too much or any engineering work into trusted execution environments. You still have some uh, concerns uh, around the performance, potentially side channel attacks. I think performance is the most uh, crucial one. So that's, that's that, the one I'm thinking about because, like yes. most, like application developers these days have gotten lazy, right? Mm -hmm. Chrome yes. Chrome uses uh, you know, 12 gigs of RAM on my machine. Like it's not probably not going to run that well in a TE. Yes. So that that brings us uh, to the second part of the answer uh, around tooling, and uh, there I would like to talk about uh, uh, this work uh, called uh, Cosmics. Uh, which was a joint research with uh, researchers from uh, the Technion and uh, from TU Dresden. And it's uh, basically a compiler-based technique for uh, what's called, the technical term is uh, secure memory instrumentation for execution in enclaves. Uh, what it practically means is that it enables us to avoid some of the things, some of the factors that introduce performance penalties uh, when running SGX. And specifically, uh, the one I talked about previously, which is uh, related to paging. So just to recap, if you're exceeding the APC, if you're exceeding the size of the enclave page cache with your workload, there is uh, this driver provided by Intel that uh, seamlessly takes care of paging uh, memory in and out of the enclave. 
uh, while also providing uh, executing those integrity checks. Um, and that's something that uh, causes a transition from trusted to untrusted execution. And the integrity check is also super heavy. So that results in a significant uh, performance penalty potentially. Uh, if we could avoid this uh, sort of uh, paging that's uh, managed by the hardware, and specifically the page faults that cause a transition in and out of the enclave, uh, we could potentially speed up uh, execution. So that was one of the purposes of uh, Cosmix. Um, what was done there is provide a compiler that you would use to compile your application that you intend to run in an enclave in a way that instruments the memory accesses seamlessly to the developer. So you don't need to change any code, but at the background, what happens on a memory access is that instead of uh, just directly accessing the virtual memory, it access, uh, accesses uh, the memory through a thin runtime component that uh, can do things like uh, paging without actually causing a hardware page fault that would cause the, this transition in and out of the out enclave. I kind of want to go back to Frederick's question there about tooling. Is mm -hmm. that tooling? Is that fall under that category? or? I think it falls into tooling, yeah. So I guess it's an optional piece. It's not required to run in a trusted execution environment, but it's something that uh, once you get to optimization and uh, trying to squeeze performance out of your workload is something you can uh, apply in, uh, say, your CI/CD. use this uh, extension to the compiler to achieve better performance. So I would count that as tooling. So I kind of want to throw back to the question that Frederick originally asked, which is about tooling. Maybe you can help understand what other kinds of tooling is Juno working on or is being developed generally that is helping with this. So I guess the broader context is uh, this uh, general uh, protection and privacy around data in use. Basically, how do you protect data when it's actually being processed? And there are different approaches to that. So we're on the Zero Knowledge podcast, and the listeners are uh, obviously familiar with a multitude of cryptographic techniques to provide uh, protection uh, for data in use. So there are cryptographic techniques, and there are uh, those uh, trust execution environments uh, that uh, provide a different approach to that, and uh, sometimes you combine both. So that's kind of the more general space. And I think we're in this general space, uh, kind of looking uh, down the road. It just there's enough work to be done now specifically around trusted execution environments and specifically more narrowly around SGX, more specifically around usability around that and making it easy to use uh, those trusted execution environments. So that would provide enough work for us for probably a couple of years. But that's how you think about tooling. It's like often this combination of other cryptographic ideas and like applying them. I I'm just curious, like, how do you use zero knowledge proofs and TEs together? How would that actually work? Um, I know, so, I'm sure there's many ways it could work together, but maybe you can help with an example. Sure. So I guess uh, it's an alternative. I guess uh, using the trusted execution environments, you can uh, provide attestation to statements by means that are not cryptographic. At the end, the, there is some cryptography. So attestation itself is, uh, as uh, was uh, mentioned in the previous uh, episode about SGX, it's based on a signature uh, where you trust that only the trusted execution environment can uh, sign some statement. But uh, the statement itself and kind of getting to a certain result uh, doesn't need to happen cryptographically. You just kind of execute a regular uh, logic inside your uh, trusted execution environment, and then you prove cryptographically that you got to this result 
by running this in the trusted execution environment. That can be an alternative approach to some of the things that uh, zero-knowledge techniques uh, are trying to solve. There are potentially additional applications. So, for instance, uh, things like uh, trusted setup that's needed for some of those protocols. That's always been a concern. Basically, how do we carry out a reliable uh, ceremony that uh, enables us to trust the protocol uh, from that point on? And uh, that's potentially where trusted execution environments can uh, come to rescue and provide an additional route of trust. What we see in the industry, I think uh, the main uh, obstacle with the TEs is usability. How do we make uh, this stuff friendly? And that's exactly what we're looking into, basically how to alleviate all this uh, work for uh, the engineers and just enable you to focus on developing your application logic, your business logic, and then run it in trusted execution environment. Uh, and it goes, uh, it starts with this uh, runtime we built uh, for transparently running applications in the uh, site trust execution environments, but it goes uh, further into paying attention to the command line tools, to making it very intuitive for uh, users to use those tools, provisioning data into the enclaves and uh, things like that. So I know that we want to move on a little bit to the topic of attacks and mm -hmm. some of the vulnerabilities. But just before that, you just mentioned the users. Who are the users? It's a good question. This space is uh, still emerging. It's still early on. What we see in the market is uh, an interest from a couple of uh, verticals. Some of them are actually knowledgeable about SGX and are looking into it. So some of those users uh, would be in the financial space. Um, are they banks? Are they... So are they both, technical actually. teams? What um, yeah, it would be something like uh, technical people at uh, banks, some of the major uh, financial institutions, kind of very traditional uh, banking. Uh, there's a lot of interest in the blockchain space, both because some of those protocols are actually based on uh, having a trusted execution environment, but also because uh, pretty much all the blockchains, they rely on holding the keys to certain assets or uh, keys to executing a smart contract, and uh, securing those keys is uh, of uh, very high importance. Basically, those keys uh, are uh, what guarantees that uh, the blockchain can be trusted. So securing those keys is something that uh, can be done by more traditional means of just securing the hosts uh, that hold those keys, uh, using cold storage for keys that you don't need to use immediately. But uh, it can also leverage trust execution environments for protecting uh, the wallets or uh, the secrets management solutions that, where you store those keys. That's interesting because then it starts to like, that's also a problem that's being solved by MPC work. And so um, I think that was a question in our last episode. And this also helps to illuminate why you see MPCs, zero knowledge proofs and T's put in the same category, even though they are super different construction systems, everything. They're super yes. different. But this sounds like why. It's because there's these use cases where you could use one or the other. So you can use one or the other, but you can also use both. So for okay. instance, with something like uh, MPC or say threshold signatures, uh, one approach for instance to securing uh, transactions and uh, signing something is instead of having a private key in one place, splitting the keys uh, between and storing them on multiple machines that have to sign transaction uh, together and only then the transaction uh, goes through. So that basically increases uh, 
the hardness of the attack linearly. It scales it uh, linearly with the amount of uh, machines or the key shares uh, you used. But on top of that, you might uh, want to also secure each one of the, the key storages on those machines uh, with uh, something that uh, provides additional security guarantees like, like a, a trusted... Key. Yeah, exactly, like a T. Okay. So you're benefiting from this combination of uh, scaling across uh, multiple machines that the attacker would need to break to and also adding those uh, hardware roots of trust. I think this becomes a bit more relevant in a proof-of-stake world as well because we're switching from where miners basically don't have to have their keys available at all. They can just take them offline and have them mm-hmm. cold stored to like when, when you run a validator, your key has to be online and available all the time. So mm-hmm. there's protocols I know of that, that have started like integrating hardware security modules and like cloud HSM on Amazon, stuff like this to basically do the signing for them. Uh, but I think TEs could fill this role pretty well. I want to actually mention uh, one uh, problem. I guess uh, we can call it maybe secret zero. One problem with uh, kind of just using the hardware security models uh, for securing uh, those keys is that you store the key securely And maybe you can assume that uh, you cannot extract the key as an attacker, uh, you cannot break into the hardware security model. But if you take over the machine that is connected to the HSM, to the hardware security model, you can basically use it as a signing oracle. So you can still ask it to sign some transactions on your behalf, uh, some malicious transactions. And that's a problem. You didn't extract the key. You cannot go elsewhere with this mm-hmm. key and do it offline, but you can still do it on this machine. Uh, so that's why it's basically hard to reason about the security of the overall uh, system uh, if you just secure this component. Uh, what we want to do in the space is to provide the security for the whole workflow. So if we talk about the flow, uh, you would uh, connect to some service via some HTTPS or TLS connection, and this service has access to keys, and it can sign transactions, but the workflow is uh, secured the uh, Entirely, basically, starting with the connection to the service and including the, the keys and the signing. Yeah, that makes sense. I think I can get behind that kind of use case a lot more than I can using it for off-chain computation, mm-hmm. uh, where basically you're, you're now sort of at mercy of whoever is the TE manufacturer. Uh, yeah. where, where here, yeah, you, each individual might still be at mercy, but not the chain as a whole. Yeah, I think the kind of combination of uh, chain and uh, those techniques uh, provide something powerful. Mm. So one thing that I want to dig into a little bit is the attacks that are available on T's because we covered it a bit in the last episode. But then we talked to, I think it was when we talked to Nigel Smart, or like we talked to someone and, and they were like, why haven't SGX, you know, been side channel attacks proofed? Like, why did they go this way? And like... They were outrageous at how this choice could have been made. And you, coming with your electrical engineering background, I mean, you, you said you'd worked specifically on like trying to prevent side-channel attacks on mobile devices. And how does someone from your background come in and look at this problem? Is it, is it unique to SGX or does it exist generally in the TE space? I guess... Um Uh, we need to kind of look at different uh, side channel attacks and uh, I think about uh, the hardness of carrying each one of them to approach it intelligently and uh, to be able to reason about what to do in practice and uh, what's secure and what's not. If we look at security in the industry today, I will start with that. If we look at security in the industry today, 
there are far bigger uh, concerns that, uh, than side-channel attacks. Also depends on which kinds of side-channel attacks. And we're obviously talking whenever you're using TEs, you're assuming uh, pretty powerful adversaries. Uh, so you do concern uh, yourself with this possibility. But uh, even if we ignore those attacks, we still would really raise the bar on security in practice. Because uh, what you see if you follow security news is that pretty much every month, uh, or even more, uh, you have some new security vulnerability in things like containers, uh, VMs, Linux, uh, other operating systems. There are so many uh, privilege escalation attacks that are available in the wild, and uh, there must be uh, many zero-day uh, vulnerabilities that we are not even aware of that are addressing this larger attack surface of uh, the operating system. Uh, so deploying those protections can uh, rule out many of them. And that would require uh, the attackers to step up and uh, start uh, potentially using uh, side-channel attacks. Can you, can you actually define those side-channel attacks? You sort of mentioned there's a few different kinds. What are they? Mm -hmm. and maybe so, not all of them, but like the, the most dangerous, I guess, the ones that people are really worried about. Yeah, so I guess in general, side-channel attacks uh, mean uh, something like uh, stepping out of the design of the system and kind of using something that's not part of the architecture, some uh, kind of side effect uh, to circumvent the architecture, could this even be if the like, architecture itself is secure. Could this be like if like the electrical signal? I mean, this is the ones I've heard. It's um, like the, the beats of how much electricity is running to it, which like you could actually use that to potentially decipher something. Uh, yeah, so for instance, uh, power analysis is uh, one example of a side-channel attack. In some scenarios, uh, this is actually a concern. For instance, something like uh, credit cards cheap that uh, you can uh, take, analyze offline, uh, run through power analysis, and potentially extract keys. Uh, that's a space where people are really concerned about those. Something like your host that's connected to your power network, if it's uh, reasonably physically isolated, and even if not, it's still not an easy attack to carry out. There might be only several groups. There might be you, you might be able to count the number of people in the world that are able to carry out those attack, attacks in practice like on an actual process. Or, hmm? Would that be like an actual, would that be a government? Or you mean like this, the technology doesn't exist to do it? Um, no, the technology exists, but it, also, it, it is also very different between different processors. So some uh, uh, microprocessors are more susceptible to those uh, side-channel attacks. If you take uh, something like an Intel CPU, yeah, there are proofs of concept. It's uh, possible, but it's, uh, it's not easy. It's a very complex architecture. It's been shown, but uh, there aren't many organizations that are capable of uh, carrying out those attacks. So let's go now, though, to the side-channel attacks of TEEs specifically. Yes. What you just described is like, this is general definition of side channel attacks. But what what would be a side channel attack for TEs? Yeah. So what's uh, what's more interesting in the context of uh, TEs and specifically Intel SGX is uh, micro architectural side channel attacks. So the previous year was a pretty bad year for processors with uh, things like uh, Meltdown, Spectre, and then uh, for Shadow that specifically uh, targeted the SGX. Um, so let's talk about those. Meldon was probably the biggest concern. It's a pretty easy attack to carry out. It's possible to carry it out uh, from any process to compromise uh, the private uh, data of the operating system and through that uh, basically compromise uh, the whole system. So that was the biggest concern. And that's something that SGX is not directly susceptible to. For Shadow, can be seen as a certain variant of uh, Meldown. Um, 
but it's not exactly the same. So foreshadow was a was a concern for SGX. Is that foreshadow? Foreshadow. Sh- for Starts with an F. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So just yesterday, actually, I was uh, talking to one of the authors of uh, this work to kind of recap on uh, the attack and all the protections that uh, came out. What's important is to see trusted execution environments uh, not as a product that's done, but as something that's, uh, that's evolving. So SGX is not done. Intel are constantly updating uh, the microarchitecture, coming uh, with the newer versions of SGX and uh, protections to those side channels. Uh, so, for instance, uh, for Shadow was uh, leveraging uh, cache uh, timing uh, side channels. And that's something that uh, Intel uh, introduced countermeasures to by uh, flashing the cache on transitions uh, between execution in the, incla- in the enclave and the uh, untrusted execution, and also differentiating between uh, running uh, with hyper-threading enabled, which is something that uh, can enable uh, carrying out a foreshadow attack, and running uh, with hyper-threading disabled, which together with uh, flashing this cache can uh, basically prevent uh, foreshadow. Another concern is uh, Spectre side channels. So that's something, I guess, that uh, can be viewed as a sort of an application uh, level vulnerability. So the trusted execution environment in this case might uh, provide uh, protection from anything else on the host, but you still need to care about uh, code gadgets that are uh, vulnerable to Spectre uh, inside your application. And some of the approaches include uh, formal analysis of uh, the code or the binaries. Uh, Some of the approaches uh, like uh, SpecFuzz, it's a work uh, that's uh, been uh, done by researchers at Technion and also researchers at Europe. I don't remember exactly the whole uh, group, but that's something that basically enables uh, to identify and uh, apply fuzzing techniques to discover uh, Spectre uh, vulnerable gadgets in applications. And if you combine all those different tools, you can probably get to something very secure. But uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to actually uh, mention uh, the talk that uh, Paul Kocher, uh, who, who stands behind the Meltdown Inspector, uh, he gave a talk at the RSA conference and he was showing this slide. Uh, he was basically painting this picture of uh, Meltdown Inspector as a piece of poop. But then uh, his point was that it's a small piece of poop on a larger amount of poop uh, that uh, <laughs> basically uh, constitutes kind of the state of security in the, in the industry in practice. And he's the, he's the man behind those attacks. So the point was that basically we have uh, probably way bigger problems in practice in the industry. So this is only the tip of the iceberg. That's just the tip of the, <laughs> the poop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's for sure. I remember, like, I listened to a couple of security podcasts, and I remember when uh, Spectre came out. You know, it was big news, and it was sort of like, oh, here's a... So like a core vulnerability, like everyone is affected. And they were talking about like all these cloud providers, you could leak so much data. And then the other host went like, okay, so uh, what data has been leaked? Well, probably nothing because it's extremely hard to do and it was patched so quickly, et cetera, et cetera. While like any other topic on the podcast is like, oh yeah, this this company lost hundred thousand dollars or this whole city block shut down or this hospital lost a couple mm-hmm. people died because their power went out <laughs> like it, it yeah it is uh, the tip of the poop for sure <laughs> yeah so so here i would differentiate uh, between different scenarios where you're applying those protections uh for instance if you want to to do something like uh 
deploy blockchain nodes that run that you protect only by a trusted execution environment on completely untrusted machine and they actually hold the keys to asset and that an attack on that translate directly to monetary loss that might be a decision you would like to consider very carefully and kind of understand what are the possibilities to carry out such an attack there but you Many of the defenses are defenses in depth that are applied in combination with other defenses. So, for instance, in the industry, you'd have some data center, uh, you'd have uh, monitoring tools that uh, you'll, you'd have intrusion uh, prevention systems. On top of that, you might also want to add uh, those protections for your most sensitive workloads. So it's not the only defense uh, you have. And there, it should be a no-brainer. You lose nothing. Well, we need to kind of consider performance and the applications uh, uh, of those environments on performance. Uh, but uh, you lose little. Yeah, you lose you lose very little by applying those uh, attacks. You tremendously raise the bar on security and you don't lose anything because it's not that you're now opening your system uh, to attackers uh, after you uh, apply this kind of protection and just letting uh, anybody in. So to wrap up, I'm curious about your thoughts on a topic that that keeps popping up, and that is you know we don't want to trust these companies, blah blah blah. What's your hope that we'll see some open source enclave actually become successful and and deployed in practice? Um, I hope that such a thing will uh, emerge. So there is the Keystone project. There was the Sanctum Research at MIT uh, that aimed at uh, providing open source uh, trusted execution environment um, with somewhat different guarantees uh, uh, compared to SGX. So personally, I hope uh, something like that would, uh, would emerge and uh, would be adapted in industry. I definitely would like to see multiple competitive architectures with uh, different properties. Myself uh, and Juna, we're in the business of uh, providing a software stack that would be cross-platform. So um, in terms of uh, kind of what we build is uh, something that uh, we would like to uh, run on multiple uh, Ts. And definitely, in terms of kind of adoption in the market, it would be beneficial to have something that's uh, open source with uh, well-understood guarantees. Um, I don't expect it to, to happen uh, very quickly because... Uh, Intel AMD still dominate uh, the majority of the data center market specifically Intel and to some extent anyway we trust those uh, manufacturers I mean security people might uh, might like to kind of complain about uh, about that uh, and about this uh, root of trust but anyway you run your workloads on those processors so whatever happens there you kind of trust the processor to do to do stuff correctly so to some extent you Practically, that's the best thing you can hope for. Uh, instead of trusting way more components, uh, like additional hardware components, the supply chain, physical security on your premises, the people around you, if you can limit the trust to the process of manufacturing, you've gone pretty far in, uh, in terms of improving your uh, security. I've, I'm sure some of our listeners will disagree with you. But. I bet, I bet, <laughs> I bet. Cool. And just to kind of wrap this up, I think there are different uh, roles uh, for industry and academia. The academia has definitely, uh, definitely needs to continue exploring the cryptographic approaches, uh, theoretic approaches to provide the uh, provable guarantees uh, for security. And the role of the industry is to find pragmatic, practical solutions that actually make possible. things uh, safer for us so yeah on that note thank you very much for being on the show it was fascinating 
Thank you very much, uh, Frederick and Anna. It was uh, it was great uh, being hosted on the podcast. And I guess we'll keep an eye on the work that you guys are doing and curious to see what comes out around TEs. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.